A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Welcome to The Chemical Show. It's a podcast where chemicals mean business. I'm Victoria Meyer, uh, the host of the show. Today, I'm talking with Brad Beauchamp, president and CEO of Carpenter Company, which is a privately held diversified manufacturer of polyurethane foams, chemicals, and insulation materials. I don't know. Brad, welcome to the show. Thanks, Victoria. Thanks for having me. I look forward to our conversation. Absolutely. So let's start out, you know, where, where people are interested, which is how was 2020 for you and your company? I mean, we faced the pandemic. The entire year was interesting from the dynamics of what was going on in the world and in markets, et cetera. So how did that play out for you? Yeah, it's, that's a fantastic question. I mean, you know, we use the word crazy a lot in a lot of different ways, but I, I really think it's probably very apropos for 2020. It was just a, a crazy year. We, you know, we started out the year in the first quarter in, you know, January and February before the pandemic uh, and saw really strong orders, right? So we thought, oh, 2020 is going to be a really good year. Here we go, right? And then the pandemic hit and, you know, it was really interesting. You know, we saw at one point we saw our sales decline. We track it by week. So, you know, dollars sell per week, let's say. We saw our, our sales decline at the, at the lowest point in the first week of April, down 75% in North wow. America. Yeah. That's a scary feeling. It was, it was a very scary feeling. And, you know, it probably is more scary if you're, you know, maybe a public company or if you're carrying a lot of debt. But being a private company and, and being without debt, it was still scary, right? You know, we were still, okay, what does this look like? What does it mean? You know, and then from that low point, things gradually started improving week by week, you know, and, and when I say improving, you know, People say, oh, well, that was up a couple of percent. I mean, we started seeing return sales growing 5 to 10 or 15% in a week. So to the point where in June, we were back running even with 2019. So, you know, it was a, for excellent. us, it was a very much a, a quick down and then a quick back up. You know, that, of course, provided a lot of encouragement. But, you know, there were a lot of challenges with that. I mean, you know, anybody who's listening to this and, and is in the chemical business or any kind of business would know, you know, th that period of time from March through, I'd say, early June in particular was just a crazy time. There was a lot of stuff going on. And, and you know, we I was really pretty thankful. I thought our folks did a fantastic job of managing their way through that. And I think one of the things that looking back on it that really helped us was two things in particular. One was that while we did ask people to work remotely, we gave them the option to come into the office if they wanted to come in the office. So we weren't a go home, stay home. We were come in, we can make it safe for you and all that stuff. And all the kind of executives decided that they would come in on a daily basis. 
So while we we have you know multiple manufacturing sites, multiple states, and you know Canada and Europe, and these issues or problems would come up, you know, state by state, day by day, and it was just so much easier to have a quick five minute discussion, maybe with the HR person, VP of manufacturing, say what do we want to do here and do it. Where I talk to friends in chemicals and outside of chemicals who spent lots of times in Zoom meetings or waiting for the next Zoom meeting and felt like they were just slogging through a lot of stuff. I felt like our decisions were really rapid. You know, they were quick, very burst kind of meetings, move on, make the decision. And and what we did is we kind of said, you know, as a goal, we said, look, if if we're if our decision we can say this is best for our customer and this is best for our employees, then then that's the decision. That's how we're going to make the decision. If we can answer that's good for both of those two constituents, then it's a good decision and we'll let the chips fall where they may. So, Yeah, that's an excellent approach. And I think you're right. I think so many companies are still with people sitting at home and you lose that interpersonal connection. It's slower to make decisions. So the ability to keep the decision-making fast and to keep your customers and your employees central to that is pretty critical. Yeah. yeah. We had, I mean, you know, kind of gotten you to the summer, right? So the summer was yeah. going really well. And then right around uh, August, September, we had more demand than we could get chemicals. So we pretty much from September through now, we've been on allocation on a variety of our the chemicals that we need. There just is not enough of them. You know, I could sell 15% more polyurethane foam each day that I'm that I'm able to make from the chemicals I can get. So it's it's been a, when I say crazy, right? You went from good business, horrible business, back to good to sold out. I mean, it's it's a roller coaster. That is a roller coaster. So yeah, so especially with supply chain constraints, is that I mean, is that because demand's up overall, or has it been operating issues on your supplier parts or COVID shutdown related? What do you see? So I think I would attribute it to two things. And and thankfully, one of those two things isn't an active hurricane season in the Gulf. We were actually, as a chemical industry, we got out of that one. But uh, two things that I saw when the shock came in March, we saw a lot of our suppliers trying to debate what to do. And, you know, like a good example is one supplier who had two reactor trains said, we're going to keep the smaller one running and we're going to shut the bigger one down and we're going to run at this rate. Another supplier said, you know, we're going to fill our tanks up and then shut it down. Right. And, and, you know, having been in the chemical industry for as long as, yeah, once you decide to shut something down, it's a process. And once you start it back up, it's a process. So like I said, with us having a kind of a V shaped recovery, those chemical companies, they were behind, they were behind Mm. the curve, right? They, opening those things back up in mid to late July, getting them running in August. And, you know, some particularly continuous processes want to run continuously. Yeah. And when you start them back up, there's always little hiccups and burps that happen. And, and they had that and they, and they didn't have other regions, you know, the, the same kinds of things were happening in Asia, probably on a little bit earlier time frame, and the same things were happening in Europe. So there wasn't other regions that could send a barge over here to bail, bail us out. And so that's what I would kind of say is that the demand was, was much bigger than expected, but almost if you had asked anybody to a man or to a woman, they would say, boy, I wish we had restarted those reactors six weeks or four weeks earlier than we did. So, yeah. Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Yeah. And 2020 yeah. wasn't so good. So <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. So what do you see in going, you know, here we are in January. Um, what do you see for this year? What's the prediction? I see all kinds of predictions of growth and recovery and, you know, it hinges on a lot of assumptions, but what are you seeing from where you sit? 
Well, you know, I think it's always been hard to have a crystal ball and say, you know, what does a year or two years or 18 months look like? You know, you feel pretty good that you can get a focus on what is the next quarter going to look like 90 days or something like that. Right. You know, right now we're still in the midst of, of tight chemical supply and super escalating costs. I mean, last yesterday, propylene just settled up 12 cents. Right. So that makes it, you know, two months in a row of double digit increases, which they had never seen, you know, so that's yeah, having a crazy. big impact, you know, in, in, in a difficult time, like if demand wasn't so good in our businesses, we'd have a hard time pushing those kind of increases through the system. But now because everything's so, so short, it really allows you to kind of say, look, this happened to me. And as a result, I have to do this. And, you know, it's going to be, you know, we have, so we supply, I think, as you know, we supply polyurethane or alkoxalate materials, one to ourselves, and then we turn those into polyurethane foam and make furniture and bedding. And then we supply the polyols and other alkoxalates out to people doing, you know, case industry type products and doing into, you know, food grade and some of those kinds of things. So, you know, for us, on the internal side, on the foam side, you know, we've got customers, um, you know, I don't know if I, I won't mention them specifically, but in furniture and in bedding who basically say that they're at 20 to 25 week back orders. You know, if you walk, uh, you walk down to the Galleria and you said, hey, I want to buy a sofa, it's likely someone's going to tell you I can get you that sofa in somewhere between 12 and 20 weeks, which is crazy yeah. to think about it. A normal good business back order in that industry might be six to eight weeks. Right. And there are lots of times where you can almost get it the next week, right? Fabricated. But, you know, so people are having a hard time. What do you mean I got to wait eight or 10 or 12 or 20 weeks for, for a sofa? But, you know, so when, when you ask about the demand, it's like I can see that window really well for now, right? Up until about May, right? Until the summer. But then is that demand going to stay, right? If we work the backlog down, is there a sustainable demand after that that, that pushes us through the rest of the year in, in a good way? So. Yeah, it's a big question. And I know, you know, certainly with everybody home, um, home improvement projects, makeovers, et cetera, have been in favor, right? So people are waiting for those sofas because yeah. they're sick of sitting on the old one and they're spending a lot well, more time on it than they used to be. It's, it's funny that you say that when, when COVID hit in March, we have a, a customer that does uh, one of our businesses is carpet underlay for residential. So the carpet pad, you know, we contacted them and we said, you know, hey, how's it going? And they said, you know, carpet pads, okay, but they are actually a large paint manufacturer. And they said, we are selling the hell out of paint. Like they were sold out in March. And then all of a sudden, you know, the pad and other things come along. And I said, you know, once you painted your walls, your sofa looks pretty old. Absolutely. So you got a fresh wall, you want a fresh, some fresh furniture to go into that room. So Absolutely. You know, I, I attributed a lot to that. Absolutely. We've had a few home makeover projects, do-it-yourself projects at home that involve paint and furniture and all kinds of good stuff. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and, you know, and people have, have real quickly diverted their spending habits, right? Where you and I or somebody else might have said, oh, we're going to go on a vacation and we're going to get on an airplane. And we're going to fly. Now you don't do that. Now you say, I'm doing a staycation, right? So I'm going to update and spend in the house. But, you know, we've also seen we do a lot into the RV industry, they were sold out, you know, and, and they had an interesting, you know, some of our customers had an interesting tale of people who would have come in in the beginning of summer or early and bought a small size RV for a trip that they were going to take on Labor Day. And it comes to getting close to Labor Day and the RV is not ready. And, they, and the person's like, I need to go on my trip. So they were letting people pick up RVs that didn't have microwaves or refrigerators in them because those were the things that were back ordered and said, 
you can go with the RV. I'll get it to you, but then you got to come back in and let me install those when I tell you it's arrived. So that's kind of how crazy it's been. It is crazy. So, you know, so travel is a good point. Are you, and you guys have been in the office, you and your executive team and, and some of your other employees, you've got customers and manufacturing sites all over. Are you guys traveling? I mean, do you, do people want to see you in person other than your employees? <laughs> you know, do you see the return of business travel? How do you, what are you seeing out there with your, with your business and your customers? Yeah, well, certainly there's been a big, you know, downshift. And so, you know, we have a large different number of sales teams. And what we told them was, look, it's okay to park your company car, or in some cases we have a, you know, how reimburse them for their lease car. And so we went through that and we said, look, you know, we're going to, we're going to pay you to idle that, that car, right. Yeah. You know, and we'll, we'll pick up your lease payment. Right. And, yeah. and we said, you know, get, get on zoom like we are here and make connections and try and stay connected. And then, you know, in certain segments, you know, like, uh, you know, carpet is a good example. It's a lot of mom and pop flooring stores. And initially they were hesitant, but then they were like, look, you know, if you want to come in, come on in. Right. And then you get to the bigger companies, you know, that we deal with and they're like, oh, no one's even in our office till September of 2021. You know, for me, it's kind of like, what, what are you doing? How do you even man, you know, run that? I, it's hard for me to fathom having that kind of, you know, and, and for, for us, we feel like, you know, one of the big things that, that makes us what we are is our culture. So, you know, there's a, obviously a feeling that if you're that, if you have that kind of diaspora going on, how do you maintain culture through all that, right? With people working remotely and all that stuff. So, you know, for us, this was kind of the decision that worked. We could distance our people. And even in our manufacturing, when I look back on it, you know, we had been for years had been focused on in our processes taking kind of uh, bulk or bulk work out of the process, right? Why yeah. should somebody use brute labor, pick up a piece of foam and move it here, right? We want them using their minds and their intelligence and other things, not just their, their muscles. So when I look back on it, you know, on a, like a producing a bedding line, we might have, uh, you know, for a full line, we might have eight people on that line. So it was easy mm-hmm. to distance, right? I know some of our competitors, we tend to throw more people at that problem, right? Prior, prior COVID, it's like it's difficult yeah. to put in an automated gluing line and those kind of things. So it's easier just to have somebody with a roller gluing it on and two people putting the sheets together. And so, you know, they were much more, I heard from our customers that they were have other competitors were having a harder time getting their plants configured for the distancing. And we, and we just didn't have that, which, you know, look, you know, serendipity, right? We were, we were more lucky than good, but, you know, I'll yeah. take it every day, so... Absolutely. I mean, you know, being a couple of steps ahead on automation and et cetera is helpful when you start running into these other business risks that involve people and pandemics, et cetera. It even, just a side note, you know, an even thing that we had to do to think creatively a little bit, because you mentioned, you know, we have going to visit customers, we have going to visit plants, but sometimes a lot of our we have on-site engineering and then we have centralized engineering and sometimes central engineering is, is needed. And, you know, we let them go when they needed to go. So it wasn't that case, but you had situations like, well, we're here, but we can't go into Canada. So what do we do? So we actually considered, you know, kind of the zoom and other things we ended up with procuring glasses for people that have the cameras built into them. And so when somebody comes and says, I've got a problem, we send them the glasses. We made sure we beefed up the Wi-Fi all around the plant. So now an engineer can sit in his desk and watch and see what's going on, what the other guy, the maintenance guy is seeing. 
rather than on the phone or him shooting a video and sending it to you, it allows him to do it hands-free. And we're making more and more use of that. I don't think it replaces the visit and and rolling your sleeves up, but it, but it's a good temporary fix or it's a good assist in what we're doing. So. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, they've said, I've seen, you know, reports that say over the past year, you know, digitization of business processes, you know, grew, has leapfrogged, right? So kind of two to three years of growth over the course of two months. And it sounds like you've seen that as well in, in different ways and shapes, right? Just in terms of uh, getting your Mr. Spock digital yeah. glasses out to the team, et cetera. Yeah, well, and, and you know, like you said, once you say, well, is this an idea? Is it feasible, right? And then you go, all right, somebody has to research what are the right ones. And then we had to go through the step of, you know, we have Wi-Fi in the plant, but do we have enough bandwidth to really, you know, because you don't want a clunky system that doesn't work, right? So, right. you know, there was other things. It wasn't like, hey, let's just throw on a pair of glasses and we're good, right? You know, I wish it was that easy, but yeah. so there's some good people putting some good work on stuff like that. That's excellent. So how do you guys look at sustainability? So, I mean, one of the hot topics that seems to be a growing focus is sustainability and the circular economy, you know, cutting across the chemical industry, Certainly a lot of it when we think about plastics, because plastics is very obvious. A lot of your products, polyurethanes, are a physical product that people are using and touching. You know, how are you guys thinking about sustainability, circularity, you know, both you and your customers? That's a great question. We actually, or at least at my level and near my level, we think a lot about it, a lot more than than I think people realize. Because it's not an easy answer. If it was easy we'd all be doing it, right? You know, I mentioned right. earlier about our carpet pad material, but we, last year, I was just going over the numbers earlier today, we consumed over 350 million pounds of used up urethane to make carpet pad. So, you know, that's probably one of the, if you looked across all the industries, one of the unsung kind of heroes in circularity and in recycling is, you know, that that foam that gets trimmed off when, you know, when you're squaring up a mattress or, you know, goes back into making carpet pad and that even the carpet pad that gets pulled out of your house gets reused into making more carpet pad. So there's a certain churn with that that you don't see in other plastics right now. Now, the downside I would say with that is, is we're still not recycling enough, right? Yeah. And, you know, I, I put a plug in to say everybody should put carpet in every room of their house so we use more pad. But the trend has been away from that, right? It used to be that you had wall-to-wall shag carpet in the 70s, right? And everywhere. Yeah. Now it's like there's carpet in the bedrooms and maybe in the upstairs hallway or in a den and that's it. So, you know, we confronting that, we looked and said, look, demand for taking stuff back or, re- you know, renew- reusing it is increasing. And one of the prime outlets is kind of flatlining or declining. And we need to make mm-hmm. sure that we can go to our customers in a year, two, three, and say, we have a solution for that. So we have a very active project with it. I was actually thinking end of last week, early this week, about how much it's changed over the last 10 years in chemicals. You know, and 10 years ago or 15 years ago, the, the sustainability question was all about renewable feedstocks, right? Give me a bio feedstock into the process. Now people don't even ask us about that. They want to know what happens on the back end. And it's been a shift. Now, we're still looking at the biofeedstock side, right? Because yeah. we think that's still a good thing to do. But, you know, it doesn't resonate with people right now as much as it is. Once my sofa is used up or my furniture is used up or my coating or whatever it is, how do I get that back and not throw it into the landfill? So it's kind of shift from a front end project to a back end project is, is the way yeah. I look at it. Yeah, makes sense. And it sounds like you're able to do a lot of it inside your own internal ecosystem as well, which is helpful. 
Right. But it, it's not an easy process if you think about it. I mean, that's what makes it a challenge is, is even if I had a good chemical process, let's say for taking foam and turning it back into, back into chemical, let's say, I still got to get the foam, right? And I got to get the, let's say, the mattress from your house to me. And I, as carpenter, I'm most interested in the foam inside of it. I'm not interested in the cover and the fabric or maybe right. springs that are in it, right? And I got to answer what do we do with all that stuff, right? Or somebody's got to help me with what we do with all that stuff, right? I know what I want. That's not just a single piece of plastic, right? It's a multifaceted, you know, yeah. and you got to say, well, what do you do with all that? Yeah. And on a consumer basis, most consumers probably don't think that their mattresses are recyclable, right? It's put it out to the trash and let the trash guys take care of it and not knowing, you know, so it's kind of the the consumer and infrastructure and knowledge also has to be there. Right. Yeah, there was just some legislation that went into effect in California. California has had a recycled mattress program for a long time. You have to be aware of it, right? As a consumer, you have yeah. to know it exists, right? And so California, you know, as much as we want to knock on them, they've done some good things in terms of making that known in furniture stores or things that this is available. Well, then they switched last year and they basically said, starting this year, if you sell a mattress, you have to be willing to take a mattress. So rather than being a voluntary program and where it's really kind of thrown some people for a loop, you know, in two regards, one is the, the online retailer, right? So right. now if I'm, if I'm Casper and I'm selling a bed, I used to just sell a bed, right? I didn't have to figure out with UPS or anybody else how to get a bed back, right? So they're right. trying to figure it out. And the big box retailers too, they're like, well, I just sold a thousand beds this week. I don't want to take a thousand of them back. So it's really, you know, California has really caused a lot of people kind of put the brakes on a little bit in the short term here, trying to figure that out because they just kind of threw it at everybody and said, we're making this change. You go figure it out. Well, that's right. And like your new mattresses, I know my, a couple of my kids have gotten new mattresses and they come rolled up in a box. And once they're out of the box and they've expanded, you can't actually get them back in the box very easily to send them anywhere. So Definitely some new. No, solutions. and you know, we you would look at the the trends like that. You know, so we talked about sustainability. Another piece of that sustainability is the amount of plastic and cardboard used in that box. So we actually Absolutely. spend a lot of time re-engineering our foam so that we can reduce that foot packaging footprint. Mm. So we actually, right before Christmas, I went up to one of our uh, equipment vendors and some of the guys in in manufacturing. We looked at some of those things because our view is that you know, how do you keep reducing that packaging footprint more and more. So it's not just the mattress itself. We got to look at the other parts of it as well. So Yeah, a lot of stuff, a lot of different factors. So you've been president of Carpenter now for two years, CEO since 2020, yeah. Yeah. taken over from Mr. Polly, who really left quite a legacy in the business. What do you think about this? I mean, what, what are you looking ahead in terms of how are you reshaping the company? Because now it's on you. And what's your legacy when you look at Carpenter Company, where it is and where it's going, impact that you're going to be able to make? Yeah. Now you got me asking the scary question right now. I'm going to sweat <laughs> a little bit on this. Yeah. There's no doubt when you, when you have somebody like Mr. Pauly, who had been in, engaged in the business for 60 plus years. I mean, you just don't see that. I, I joked when I had to present him with a 65-year employee anniversary award. I thought it was very odd because not only does he own the company, so I don't, whatever's in the little booklet, it's not going to matter, but how do you call the the award company and say, I need a 65? They like, we can send you two thirties, right? You know, but so 
but he had such a big impact on the company, on the culture, on everything else. And, and that's, you know, first and foremost in my mind is, is how do we keep replicating that? How do we make sure that those kind of intrinsic values stay, but how do we, you know, improve some other processes and things that reflect a more, you know, modern organization thing. And that's really where I've spent a lot of my time is trying to think about how you do those and do them well. Right. You know, and, and how do we grow the company in the right way? You know, I, it would be, I think probably easy in our position to say, well, we'll just go out and we'll double the business by making a couple of really big acquisitions. Somebody can do that. Right. But I don't think we'd end up with the same company in that regard. And, you know, so what we want to do is say, how do we grow the business effectively, but maintain and, and replicate the culture side of it? And that's, I think that's the real challenge out there in the market. You know, valuations are a challenge sometimes, right? Somebody wants something more than you want it. They pay more than you want, right? But, you know, you look at it, how do you kind of grow effectively so that you look back in, in a couple of years and you say, well, you know, we've, we've added 10% or 15% to the workforce, but they all act like we all act, right? You know, as a company. That's right. Yeah, that's the hard part, especially when you guys have such a strong culture and really a, a family culture and an entrepreneurial culture to continue to grow and develop that. Yeah, I would say on your 100th uh, anniversary of your podcast, check back with me and we'll see how I'm doing that. <laughs> I will. Yeah, you're, you'll become a regular. I will check in regularly to say, yeah. OK, Brad, you know, how's this going for you? Yeah. Yeah. You can say, how are you holding to your values? Right. I mean, that's probably the, when you cut to the quick, that's kind of the question, right? Are you keeping the, keeping the values, right? Yeah. So, so what do you guys, what do you see as the key values of Carpenter? That's a good question. I think that the, the ethos has been a, around a, a place that, that people want to work in, right? Uh, there's a lot of people, regardless of their job, that come in and say, this is a good company that cares about me that I want to do my best work for. There's a really good focus on uh, you know, being efficient and investing in location. You know, we were just talking about it earlier today. Um, you know, on, someone had visited this was a while back, one of our customers and, you know, it was really disorganized. And for us, that's, that's uncomfortable, right? We like organization. We like efficiency. You know, yeah. we always looking for how do we, how do we, you know, I mentioned earlier, how do you make that mattress more efficient and how do you use the brain muscle of your people and not the brute muscle of your people to generate more, right. And do better. Yeah. Right. So, you know, that's really the culture is just to say, okay, as you mentioned, we're family owned, we're private, we're going to do certain things, certain ways, you know, as it relates to cash and debt and that kind of stuff. But, but when it comes down, if you pulled up somebody, you know, out of one of our plants and you said, you know, what makes a place different? I'd hope they'd say that, you know, they're investing in the people and, and I feel like it's a really good place to work. And we've, we've got a lot of really good tenured people you know, in that process. And, and I said earlier, you know, when COVID was hitting, you know, we went back and said, what are the right decisions to make? And, you know, at the time, you know, Mr. Pauly and I had a discussion about it. And I thought, you know, there was a lot of stuff in the Wall Street Journal about furloughs and, and about, you know, guys voluntarily taking salary reductions. And, you know, so I was like, all right, where's his mind at on this? Because this is the first time we've been through it. So I don't really know what he's thinking, right? So I go in and I'm, I've got numbers in my pocket in case I need to pull them out of, of impacts of what you do. And he kind of looks at me and he said, the reason we have a strong balance sheet is so that we can get through times like this without affecting our people because they come to work for us because they want to make a career out of it. And I was like, amen. I didn't have to stress out about that, right? I didn't feel like someone was going to put a hammer down on me two weeks later and say, you know, what's your plan for, you know, trimming expenses by 35% or whatever, right? So, yeah. 
Yeah, that's phenomenal. And that's actually, yeah. you know, it's the the benefit of building your business strong, right? And, and building yeah. your balance sheet so that you can ride it out. That's right. good. So Cubs baseball, <laughs> what's going to happen this year? Is anybody going to go watch a baseball game? You know, I would guess that probably somewhere, maybe Major League Baseball is talking somewhere like after the 4th of July, or maybe even at the 4th of July, they would get back to something like a 50% capacity and kind of yeah. kick off the second half of the season that way. You know, and, and, and the Cubs, you know, been a Cub fan my whole life. So, you know, it was fantastic to win the World Series and they, and they invested to make that happen. And it was really interesting if you read Theo Epstein, who is the general manager who pulled it off, some of the calculations they were doing would just kind of surprise you. You know, the Cubs had the best team when they won the World Series and their own internal metrics when he was talking about it said that their best case scenario thought that even then they still only had about a 28% chance of winning the World Series. And that if they traded for Araldus Chapman, that that percentage went up to about 38 or 40 percent, right? So you think and you look from the outside and say, gosh, you know, they're, they're the best team in baseball. Why wouldn't they win? But particularly in baseball, so many times the best teams don't win, you know, that all they can really do is try to maximize their chances of success, you know, and, and hope that it works out. And I think they had hoped that some of those hitters would continue on an upward trajectory and they hadn't. So now they're stuck with you know, like most teams do having to face, all right, we got to, you know, we got to retool or, or is it a full rebuild? Right. I mean, is it just some rust on the quarter panels and I just sand it off and we're good to go, or do I got to really get in the engine and, and fix it? So, yeah, always a good question. We'll see where, it, where, how it plays out this year, I guess. Exactly. Awesome. Well, Brad, Brad, this has been really good. I appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate you sharing with me insights and the industry and about Carpenter and, where it's going. So, you know, thanks. Thanks. Well, it was a lot of fun. So like I said, uh, happy to come back and do it some other time, you know, and I look, I look forward to some of your other guests, right? I want to see yeah. who else you're talking to and, and see what their thoughts are on, on these kinds of topics. So it would be absolutely fantastic. I, I think you're doing a great thing for chemicals in general. I don't know that I see much of that out there. So I think you're in a good space, but thank you. Well, and in fact, that was part of my thing is that, you know, people need the story of the, of, the chemical companies and what's going on. And there's no outlet at the moment. Yeah. So. I was talking with one of our guys who's not a chemical guy. And, I, you know, there's that old petrochemicals handbook in which you, if you roll out the chart, it shows oh, yeah. you where benzene goes <laughs> and all that stuff. And someone should make a chart that shows where the old companies went to, right? The old Oxarains and the old, yeah. you know, DuPonts and everyone else, because it just has changed so much. So those of us who've been into it, you can almost tell, like I was going to, you know, if you refer to something as the NPRA instead of the AFPM, you kind of date yourself, right? Because people know oh, yeah. then what, right? So it's the same thing. And you're like, oh, that old company. And somebody's like, who? And then you're like, oh yeah, yeah. Now they're, you know, it's now part of Dow. So, and then. Absolutely. You know, We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.